1 Corinthians chapter 6. If it's a pew Bible you've got, that's page 1777. And um, in case you weren't here for some of the stuff we did with the Guatemala team preparing, Outreach for World Hope is an organization that helps people in Guatemala in the most advanced stages of starvation. And so we're going to share the gospel with people. We're also going to give some agricultural support, do a bunch of deworming, which doesn't sound that glamorous. Deworming doesn't sound glamorous, does it? But it is. You can do it with sunglasses on. But also, um, Christianity Today did a thing not that long ago that basically had the top ten things you can do for other people in the world that actually make a difference versus just are pretty cool. And deworming was either number one or number two. Because it's like two bucks a kid and it changes their nutrition for like six months. And then they can fight off diseases better and grow better and all that kind of stuff. So, it's kind of cool. All right, so 1777. Here we go. Um, the context here, I'm going to start reading in verse 9. The context is the section, chapter 6, 1 through Eight, is on Christians suing each other and about how that is not totally not consistent with the gospel because especially because these people it's just obvious they're using it to steal from each other and hurt each other and he's just like that's if you believe in Jesus that's not what you do I mean that's just not your identity and who you are and and so he gets to this place and he kind of lays out really starkly what it means to be a believer in the gospel and so here's what he says in verses 9 to 11 He says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you are justified in the name of our, the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, it should be really obvious what that passage is about. That passage is about the fact that Jesus makes a difference, an enormous difference in terms of our identity and who we are and who we become, and that there really is a fundamental difference between um, our identity not being in Jesus and not being part of God's kingdom and not doing, I mean, just our identity being in some of these other things where our disordered desires are allowed to run free and we slander each other, we steal from each other, we worship idols, we do all kinds of things. And, um, the, and he said, listen, if you, if you give yourself to that, if you sue each other and if you do these things that just destroy each other, and you give yourself to that rather than to Jesus, you won't inherit the kingdom of God. You, you won't. And that is a euphemism for something very negative um, of separation from God, but also not enjoying, because the king is going to come back, and we're going to be either part of his kingdom or we're not going to be, and that's very important. But also, he says, listen, but you guys were those things, but when you came to Jesus, because of Jesus and because of the Spirit of God that comes to all those who believe in Jesus, you were changed. Your whole identity was transformed, especially in three ways. You were washed, meaning you were cleansed from those things, and and their guilt and their and their um, and and you were sanctified, meaning you were set apart for something different. You were given a, a different identity. You were made for you were you realized and were recognized and were made for something else. And third, you were justified, meaning you were put in right standing with God. Like God, God's love can flow freely to you and back and forth. I mean, there's there's nothing between you. There's nothing breaking your relationship anymore. You stand justly before God. And those, that happens when Jesus comes. Now, um, 
here's the thing. In, in a chapter, in chapter 7, there's a place where the Apostle Paul is talking about singleness. And he says to the people, because of the present situation, I want you to act this way. Because he recognized as a pastor, sometimes because of the state of the culture, because of what's happening in society, you've got to face stuff and you've got to talk about stuff and you've got to direct people. Um, and that's just part of being a pastor and leading people in relationship to, to Jesus. And so... Um, I told those of you who were here um, two weeks ago this, that I was going to go back. After I preached on this next passage. I was going to go back, and I was going to do a, a whole sermon on um, how, do you, how do you live as a Christian in the culture, believing the gospel and living out the gospel um, in relationship um, to same-sex attraction and homosexuality. I said I was going to talk about this, and I am going to— and, um, and so I need to say a couple things if you're a visitor. The first is— that um, if you've been here, I think you would know, you just ask somebody if this is true who's sitting next to you, that I'm not one of those preachers that attacks people not like me and then lets everybody else off the hook. If, if, if you go here, um, if there's anybody I let off the hook in relationship to sexual morality, it would be in the area of same-sex attraction. I mean, I go after adultery and fornication. I mean, all the, all the heterosexual stuff we hit, when the Bible hits it, we hit it. And so the, I, I think that I can say with integrity that this is not, this is not like a, we're going to treat a certain people a certain way. And secondly, also, you know, you wouldn't, you, this has to be talked about, you would not send your kid to school on the school bus to figure out, about, to hear about sex, would you? Right? Because you just can't. You just can't not talk about it, even if it's unpleasant, or even if your kid is grossed out when you talk to him about it, you can't not talk about it. You have to talk, talk about it because you just can't trust what they absorb to be what you really want to communicate to them. And so, um, so I feel like it's really important to, to talk about this. Um, let me just say a couple things about my background, because some people want to know the sort of positionality of the author um, when they hear speaker or something. And um, I've had a very varied experience with this myself. Um, I remember, and a lot of you had this experience, first day at university, the first event I went to that was mandatory that all freshmen go to was called Orientation Express, and it was an hour-long presentation put on by the drama department that basically was designed to teach us two things. One, you probably shouldn't have a lot of unprotected promiscuous sex. That's probably a bad idea, so it's okay to have a lot of Promiscuous sex, just make sure it's not unprotected. So you can get free condoms down here. And secondly, um, if you don't affirm anybody who has same-sex attractions or chooses or is involved in a homosexual lifestyle around you, um, you're awful. You're just, you're awful. And you're bigoted and you're ignorant and you're, you're, you're probably just terribly mean and you just can't understand reality. And, if, and that's not what this community is about, the university community, so you need to change that view if you have that view. And... Um, I said that last hour, and my mom was sitting in the front row who paid for my college education. She was like, <gasps> I was like, yes, mom, you paid for that. In my, I took, my first semester, I took History 202, which is American history up until 1865, which, of course, you would think there'd be um, multiple small groups discussing homosexuality and abortion, right? Um, but that's the experience I had, was, and, and that's just, that was what college life was like. And, and I had both um, experiences with the Gay and Lesbian Student Union that were both mutually respectful and also very... Um, lively. And then also, Alexa and I, living in the dorms and living um, 
on campus our whole four years, we had really close friends that were, were gay and lesbian. I, I mean, I remember talking all through the night with um, Lexi with a lesbian friend, and um, we, we had people who came to us who were, because we were leaders in the movement, and there were no staff workers. You know, like here at UW, there's like Campus Crusade staff workers and university staff workers and pastors you can talk to, but I was in a town where most of the pastors were very uneducated, and there were no staff workers at, at this university. So we 18, 19-year-olds, we had to sort this out all on our own, and we'd have conversations. Some Christian guy would come and be like, I think I'm bisexual. What do I do? You know, and things like that. And, um, and that was just kind of the world I got thrown into at 18 or 19. And since then, one of my dearest friends in seminary um, left after a semester and went to Oxford and came out the next semester that he was gay. And, and I've been friends with him for 10 years. We have very long discussions about um, his experience of same-sex attraction, all that kind of stuff. And so I've had terrible experiences. This week, I had lunch with one of the, with maybe the top leader in the gay movement in Madison. We had a wonderful lunch together, talked for two hours. And so I've both felt the intimidation, felt bullied. I've said ignorant things. I've tried to be very engaging. I've, 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 and so I, there's a whole big swirl around this. And um, I don't know what to tell you about how to judge me in terms of positionality. Other than, for whatever reason, the Lord just hasn't let me get away from this for 15 years or so. And it's just led me back to reading and to people and to talking and to things. And anyway, I want to do five things this morning. I want to ask, I want to answer, try to answer five questions. What does scripture say? What does the science say? How do we personally, theologically reflect on this? Four, how do we respond publicly? And five, how do we relate to people with same-sex attractions, either in the church or outside the church? And um, I, I put up a blog on this. Um, let me see if this works. I don't know why it doesn't. I put up a blog on this. Um, he'll, he'll put up the, the thing in just a minute. Um, where it is, and that has all the talks and all the videos and all the stuff I'll reference um, if you want to look more deeply into this. So first, what do the scriptures say? And um, the short answer to this, what do the scriptures say, is what they seem to. What the, what the scriptures really say and what they really mean is, is basically what they mean to say and what they, they seem to when you read them. Um, the reason I say that is because, especially since about 1980, there's been a really long sort of scholarship tradition here of many books written by very learned, intelligent people to say that what the Bible looks like it's saying, it doesn't really say. It, may, it condemns certain kinds of homosexuality, but not the sort of kinds that are advocated publicly, like same-gender, uh, same long-term monogamous unions. That the Bible doesn't say anything about that. It just talks about male prostitution and unequal pederastic relationships and things like that. And if you take that stuff out and you just take the kind of stuff that we're talking about here now, that it doesn't say anything bad about that. Um, and I, I've read a lot of those arguments. Um, I find them very unpersuasive. Now, there's a couple things I would say. There's six main passages in the scriptures that reference homosexual behavior. And one of them is Genesis 19, and it's the passage about Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's, here's my advice about that passage. I think you ought to just throw that one out in terms of trying to learn anything about what God believes about same-sex sex. It, it, because it's just too mixed up with murder and rape. And, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff in there. It's not just some gay people talking. And so it's, I just think you should take that one and throw it out and just not use it, okay? Because it, it just tends to be 
God destroys that city because they want to kill people and rape people. It's not because anybody's gay. I don't, I don't think there's any good credence to that. So I just don't even use it. So the next ones and the ones that are the most, most important are in Leviticus 18, 22 and 2013. 18.22 says this, Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Sometimes detestable is translated abominable or abomination. Um, those are technical words in Hebrew, and so it's not really very helpful English translation either way. But, um, but one of the things, the arguments that happens pretty regularly is somebody will say, Yeah, but you know, in Leviticus, it also says that you can't eat birds and shrimp and that you can't wear clothing made out of more than one kind of fabric and a number of things like that. And if something has mold on it, you got to throw it away and so on. And you don't do those things, so why do you still claim, you know, you conservative Bible-believing Christian person, um, that, that this command is still valid? That doesn't, that's, that's just hypocrisy. You just see how you're just picking out what you want? And um, here's, I think, a plain response to that. It's not, you're not being hypocritical or picking out what you want if the scriptures themselves tell you how you're supposed to distinguish between Old Testament commandments. Long before there was any debate about sexuality or any of these issues, the reformers and many theologians before them understood that there were at least three different parts of the law. There was the ceremonial law, there was the moral law, and, um, and, and I can't remember the name off the top of my head right now. But anyway, that, that not all of the laws in the Torah were fundamentally the same. Right? The law not to murder was not the same kind of law as the law not to eat unclean animals. And so the question is, does the Bible give us any hint as to which laws stay and which laws actually become obsolete in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection? And here's the answer. Jesus tells us. He tells us. Um, in Mark 7, he says explicitly that the cleanliness and the laws are fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection, and therefore we're, we're to believe directly in him and follow him rather than in the, the system of the ceremonial laws. But yet in numerous places, Jesus refers to the sexual moral code as perfectly valid for now. He refers to sexual immorality, and if he does anything with the sexual morality code of the Old Testament, he ratchets it up, right? I mean, most of us know about um, Matthew 5, where Jesus says, listen, Moses said that don't commit adultery, right? But Jesus didn't say, but that's, that's the past. Now I fulfilled. No, he says, he says listen, here, I, here's what I've come to tell you. What I've come to tell you is that if you look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So what did Jesus do with that part of the law, right? Did he get rid of it? No, he said, this amps up. This other part is fulfilled in me and therefore becomes obsolete. So Jesus tells us how to relate to these parts of the Old Testament, and he tells us very explicitly that the sexual code, as well as many of the other parts of the moral code, are are indeterminate, whereas some of these other ceremonial laws he explicitly tells us are not. See how that works? And so it's not hypocritical at all for us to do that. It's exactly what our scriptures tell us to do. And it seems to me that God can have the prerogative to say something at one point in how he reveals himself progressively through history and drop that out by telling us in another part of scripture. There's no reason why God can't do that or why that's not intellectually valid or something like that. Does that make sense? Now, the question is, what about the Apostle Paul? And so you see this the man lies with, a, a, lies with there. See, in 6-9, our passage that I talked about today, this, these two words, male prostitute and homosexual offender, have been notoriously debated as to what they really mean. Because people, because, here's why, because people don't know for sure, okay? This word here, that male prostitutes, it was translated in the King James Bible, effeminate. And the reason for that is, that there's this problem is that the word literally means soft, the soft. 
And that word is used in the context of effeminate males, particularly within a class of effeminate males that engaged in male prostitution. So how do you translate it? Is it just an effeminate guy who doesn't embrace masculinity and live that out? There's a lot of people who think that, right? It's possible. Or does it refer technically to the group of those people who engage in male prostitution? We don't know is the answer to that question. Um, This word, koitai, the problem with this word is it only, it's only twice in the Bible and it never shows up before here. This is the first time it shows up. And the two times in the Bible are both by the Apostle Paul. And both times it's in a list of sins. So what does it mean, right? It's, now, the thing is, the reason why it shows up is because he built it out of two other words. The word for man and the word for lie with or to have sex with. So it means have sex with a man. Where did he get that? Well, he got it from here. You see? The, the thing about this word, even though it's difficult, what it actually does is demonstrates that he constructs it from the Old Testament command in Leviticus that he believes is still valid. So not only does Jesus explicitly say the sexual moral code is still valid, but also the Apostle Paul apparently thinks that too. So much so that um, most pro-gay Bible scholars have actually let this one go. For example, Dan Via, professor emeritus of New Testament from Duke Divinity School, had argued in a book, and he said, yeah, um, Paul's just wrong. It says that, and, it mean, and this, he, is, he is quoting Leviticus 18, but he's wrong. Because that shouldn't be in that list. And so, maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. But there isn't any question about what the Bible teaches. If you believe 1 Corinthians is inspired by God, then that's what it says. And if you don't, you just think it's what Paul wrote because he wanted to try to help us and he was a pastor and it may or may not be inspired by God or what. Then you go the other way. But if you hold the view of Scripture that believes that this is God's Word inspired through the personalities of the writers, then what, what he's saying is Dan, Dan Via is conceding that point, right? Um, I could say a whole lot more about that, but I think we, I'll just leave it there and just say um, there's a couple of good books on this. This one actually disappointed me because Dan Via, the guy who writes the pro-gay position in this one, it's a very thin book, 90 pages maybe. I wasn't real impressed with it. I was looking for a really good pro-gay argument. I, I felt like Via just punted because he just basically said, yeah, well, Paul's just wrong and we can't, you can't really take the Bible literally. And then he just kind of went from there. And there's also some technical stuff that unless you're trained, it's really hot, tough. And this one's like 800 pages. But these are, I think, the best books out right now that deal with this. So, yeah, anyway. Um, but the short answer is, I think, once you wade through everything, my, what I think is that the Bible really just does say what it just seems plainly to say. And you can go round and around, but second, what does the science say? And the short answer to this, as far as I can tell, is that it doesn't answer our questions. What you wish it would tell you definitively, whatever position you have, whether you have take a pro-gay position or whether you take... Um, a biblical, and I should say what the biblical position, I think, is. The historic Christian view on same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior is that homosexual sex is sinful and homosexual desires are disordered desires. And you need to say right after that that, Christianly speaking, we believe that all of us are chocked full of disordered desires. Homosexual desires are just one of 500 possible human disordered desires. I have all kinds of disordered desires. Greed, slander, selfishness, Adultery. I mean, I got all kinds of disordered desires. I don't have that one very often, but it's just one of many, many disordered desires. And so Christians believe we're full of, that's what we call the sinful nature, or depravity, or sin indwelling in us. And we're full of disordered desires. This is one possible one. 
And um, that's the idea that we're to, we're to view it that way. So in relationship to science, it doesn't answer our questions. Here's the sad truth about the field of psychology, as far as I can tell. It is both, it is simultaneously both incredibly sophisticated and sadly primitive. That it's, it's, a, it's amazing what we've learned about the human brain as a society and what we, how we can do therapy and what th- things people can get better outcomes for and all that kind of thing. It's amazing how sophisticated in some ways um, brain studies have become in psychotherapy and all those kinds of things. In other ways, it's just, it's, it's sad just how primitive the whole thing can be and how badly it can be done. And when it comes to the issues of same-sex attraction, we've spent literally um, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars as a society studying the phenomenon of same-sex attraction in human beings. And we've learned a lot of stuff, but we have not learned the fundamental answers to our most basic questions. Let me just go over a little bit of this. You've probably heard a lot of different quotations about prophenience, like what percentage of the population has predominant same-sex attractions. And that's because people have published anything from 0.2% to 20%. And the, the reality is, is it, just, it just matters how you count and when you count. For example, um, sexual identity within high school students is notoriously fluid. And so you'll always get a higher percentage of high school students that say that they're having same-sex attractions, always. And it tends to go down dramatically. So, for example, one study um, found that 8.5% of high school boys said that they were having significant same-sex attractions. But 24 to 29-year-olds self-reporting in the Center for Disease Control, the rate is 2.4%. So, and that's one of the reasons why it's touchy when you do gay affirmation therapy in high schools, right? So, anyhow, provenience, it looks like, is somewhere between 2.4% and 1.1%, and lesbianism is always half. Whatever the number is for male homosexuality. That's kind of interesting. Lesbianism is always half, which is kind of odd. I would expect lesbianism. See, that's why you know it's not a, just a plain choice that people want to do it because you would think sensibly you'd have 50 times more women who would reject us, right, than guys get rid of But it, it's, just, it's just, I think that's anecdotal evidence that people don't just want to be gay because they feel like it. Um, I'm sorry, that probably shouldn't make a joke during this sermon, but hopefully that was funny. Um, so there's been th- three basic family of theories in terms of provenience. Like, why do people have predominant same-sex attractions? And they essentially come down to genetics, hormonal theories, and birth order theories. And, um, and the, the, the science of this has just been notoriously confusing. A good, one of the examples of this is in 1991, and the reason, this is a little bit older study, but this is the one that really was so popular. Um, by Bailey and Pallard, and um, they did a study with twins, and they thought, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll look at sibling pairs, and based on the how many, if one's gay, the other one's gay, we'll have some sense of genetics, because if you look at, you know, identical twins and fraternal twins and siblings, and what, you, you know, there's different relatedness genetically, and that'll tell us a lot. So they looked at them, and so here, here were the rates. Um, for identical twins, and they did the pro-band-wise bi- pro concordance, for identical twins, it was 52%. Fraternal twins, 22%. Brothers, 9%. And adopted brothers, 11%. Now, that's just confusing, right? At first, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that confirms it, or oh, no, that doesn't. Depend- I mean, but it's confusing, right? Because these guys, they're 100% genetically identical and identical in terms of the hormones they received in ut- utero, right? They're in the same womb. So it, but it's only 52 Two, but then, and then adopted brothers, it's more? What? It's just, normally, see, in the news, when they report it, they didn't report this bottom category. 
You take that bottom category out, it looks just pretty obvious. But see, the fraternal twins, they had the same hormonal, you know, they were in the same womb, but they're not any more genetically like each other than these bro- the brothers, right? So why the... And there's also another thing, and actually, this actually took years to come out. I've never heard anybody but Stanton Jones find this. But one of the things he looked at in the study was, why the 52%? Because it didn't smell right. Because when you look at the actual numbers of people compared, it's not half. And it's because of a fairly technical category in psychology studies called pro-bandwise concordance, which is doing numbers based on subjects with the possibility of matching. So any subject that has the possibility of matching, you check to see if they match, okay? See, what most people would assume, if it's 52%, they'd look at, so you've got two sets of twins, right? They'd look at this set, and they'd go, okay, this, this, this man is gay. Is this one? Yes, that's one, Right? And then you go here, and you've got this one. Is he gay? Yes. Is his twin gay? No. So that's one. That's, that's, a, that's a no. So, so for this test case, what percentage is going to be? 50%, right? It's not. It's 70%. Here's why. Because it's, it's opportunity to match, okay? So number one, is his twin gay? Yes, that's one. Twin, opportunity to match. Is his twin gay? Yes, that's two, Okay? Twin, is his twin gay? No. That's, that's one no. And then this is not an opportunity to match because he's not gay. So you don't count this way. So you don't get yes, yes, no, no. You get yes, yes, no, move on. So what that means is in this study, 52% is really like low 30s. And in fact, when this study was replicated in 2000 with the Australian Twins Registry, which in Australia, they keep track of every twin that's born. Which is kind of cool. You can go and you can get all of them. It was, tw- it was 20% with pro-bandwise concordance, which amps it up. So it's, that's confusing because in some ways it looks kind of like there's a relationship, but then it doesn't really, it's not easy. It's not like, oh yeah, it's this or oh no, it's that. or it's, Right? It just doesn't work. When it, in terms of hormone theory, there was a famous study done with high school students, and what they found was that boys... Um, in high school, in this study group, 8.4% of them said that they were having a significant number of same-sex attractions. But if a boy was from a fraternal, fraternal twins and the fraternal twin was a girl, it jumped up to 17%, which made hormonal theory sound plausible because maybe the hormones that formed the gender femininity of the girl twin affected the boy twin so that he came out with the same-sex attraction. Does that make sense? That makes some sense, right? Here's the problem with that. When they isolated out those boys, when, they, when, you took, when you took out the boys that were fraternal twins with a girl twin, but they had an older brother, the percentage went back down to 8.4%. The whole thing went away if there was a boy in the house. Right? That's weird. What does that tell us? I, now here's the, and here's the problem. Here's what it tells us. We don't know. <laughs> what we know is, is that some of the theories of, that are slam dunks, like, oh, it's genetic, or oh, it's this, or it's hormone theory, or it's blah, 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 it's all that, it's, it's probably not, or it's, it's certainly not just that. Um, and, but also the simplistic, like, oh, it's not this, and it has no relationship, and oh, and now we know it's not biological, it must be all nurture. That's not true either. It's not true either. It, it, neither one of these is slam dunk either direction. And so, um, in fact, uh, Stanton Jones, who studied, studied he studied at uh, University of Arizona. He's one of the top evangelicals on this. He's a provost at Wheaton College. 
And he said, he, he went, when he went to the University of Arizona, he studied under a lady who was both um, doing research in depression and homosexuality. Not related, but she was, a, she was a sexuality scholar and she was a depression scholar. And what he learned in his depression studies was, though depression had a single phenomenology, people were just depressed. Like, if you looked at what's, what's happening, they're depressed. He said there were like 50 different ways to end up depressed right? So your mom could die, and you could just be to end up depressed for a while, because that's just, that happens. Or you could have something going on in your brain, and that could produce depression. Or you could have something that happened in your childhood in relationship to bonding, and this, blah, 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 and, or all kinds of different things could come together to produce depression. And Stanton Jones said, as he studied homosexuality in relationship to his training in depression, what he realized was, as he dealt with person after person after person, was that it seemed like there wasn't one homosexuality. There was one phenomenology, that is, one thing that happens, same-sex attraction, but the reason somebody could have an experience of same-sex attraction could be widely varied. And if that was true, you'd have a lot of trouble scientifically nailing it down. But here's the problem. It doesn't help us with the two questions most everybody wants answers to. No matter what side you take on this, that is, is it a choice, and can people change? Both sort of very bitterly disputed questions. And the issue of, is it a choice, it really depends on what you mean by choice. What I think that English word means is volitional. Like, you've got more than one option, and you pick this one, or you pick something that you know will lead you to that. And as, as far as I can tell, the answer is no. It's just no. Most people, no matter how, no matter what the reason why people have same-sex attractions, I don't see any good evidence to believe, either anecdotal or scientific, that people initiate it. People experience it. And listen, that has never been a problem for Christianity, because we—that's what we believe. That we believe that most of what's broken in us, we didn't choose. We believe in a broken nature, right? So that's not an issue for us. Um, but it's, I think it's important that we accept it because otherwise we're going to heap scorn and abuse on people really kind of, I think, in a, in a really unhelpful way. Um, so, and the second one is, can people change? And this is the most bitterly disputed question in our culture right now. There's legislation in California that's been introduced to make it illegal to do um, therapy with a minor um, wanting to take someone from same-sex attraction to anything else. And that you'll have to sign a waiver that explicitly says that that kind of therapy is completely ineffective and probably harmful if you're an adult and you want it. The uh, American Psychological Association, Association has been very explicit. There's no evidence this works, and it probably will hurt you um, if you try it. And the gay community is very adamant about this because, and it's been, and for, for good reason in the sense that they have seen, they, you know, everybody in the gay community has talked to people who have been hurt by trying to change or feel like they've been hurt or whatever. And, they, and you only need two or three stories to make it seem like 50% of the people. You know what I mean? I mean, you know how that goes with things. So, um, but here's, here's the issue with that is that there's sort of two inconvenient truths because, um, in 2007, Stanton Jones and I think Mark, Mark Yarhaus published a study, and it's in a book called Ex-Gays, where they did a study on whether or not anybody can change because the American Psychological Association said sexual orientation or same-sex attraction cannot be changed. They came right out and said it cannot be changed. 100% cannot 
cannot be changed. And so Stan Jones started with that hypothesis as a researcher. Sexual change can't be changed. How could we either verify or falsify that hypothesis? And so he put together a study on it, and he went to a number of major psychological research grant foundations, and they said, this is a great opportunity. This is a great study. It'll be very helpful. There's no, there isn't a snowball chance in hell that you're going to get money from us because we just can't take the risk. We cannot do this publicly, give money to this kind of study. But they eventually did get it funded, and they studied 100 people going through Exodus International programs that were seeking same-sex attraction change. And they did it. It was longitudinal over seven years. So it, was, it looked for f- a fair amount of stability. And the results that they got, depending on how you count, was 23% of those people, or 23 of them, obviously, um, reported success in changing from a same, mainly same-sex attracted orientation to a heterosexually attracted orientation in such a way that they could engage in fulfilling relationships, heterosexual relationships. Another 30% um, reported success in a fulfilling, chaste, single lifestyle. So depending on how you count, that's either 53% or 23% um, of, a, of a success rate. Now, 23% is not a very good success rate. Right? I mean, there's a lot of people um, who don't. So, the, so here's the problem. If the hypothesis is nobody can change ever, that's probably false. We don't know very much. We probably have to do some more studies. If, if the issue is, oh, well, you have same-sex attractions, well, you can change. You can't say that to people. I don't think. I don't think you can. There is no evidence that if somebody wants to, even if they're very devoted to Jesus, they believe the gospel, they love God, they they accept the biblical position, they want to change that they can. I don't think you can categorically say that to people. I think you can I think you can give people hope that it might be the case. I think you can tell people that God can accomplish amazing things. I think you can say that, you know, the therapy for this is pretty primitive right now, but who knows what it'll be in 10, 11 years. Uh, who knows what when a breakthrough might occur? And so therefore here's what we got to do. We got to look at where Jesus is calling us and walk in it the best we can and recognize that he's promised that he will cleanse us, that he will set us apart for a new identity in him, and that he will justify us and set us right with himself. And some people will experience change. There really are. I think Stanton Jones talked about his last semester, he was at school and five kids came to his office the first week of school and said that they'd experienced really remarkable, miraculous change, but they could never tell anybody because they had heard what has happened to people who's come forward and said things. But at the same time, there have been other people who've come forward and they've said, I, was, I had same-sex attractions, I don't anymore, isn't this great? And then two years later, they're not there anymore. So it's bitterly disputed. And so here's what I think, I think where we have to get is, um, my, con- my conclusion on this is, as people, I think we need to be very adamant about freedom in research and professional practice. I think, I think that one of the, th- I think it's v- very detrimental to not allow pe- professionals in these fields to research the way their conscience says they should. And when literally hundreds of thousands of Americans say, I wish there was a therapy that could help me for this, and we, we simply cannot know if there is one or not one that's possible, to say that we'll put no funding into it, we'll ridicule anybody who does it, we'll put out legislation against it, and we'll attack everybody, I just don't think is a very good idea. At the same time, I think other people's research should, th- th- that I just think that there should be freedom because who, who knows what's possible? We don't know. Um, so third, how should we reflect on this? And I'm going to say a few things about this briefly. In, in, in some sense, I think this is the most important part. 
And that is that I think we need a better understanding of sin, brokenness, community, and sexuality theologically. Here's what I mean by that. First is we need a better understanding of sin. In the 5th century, there was a controversy between a monk named Pelagius and a theologian named Augustine. And essentially the controversy came down to whether or not we were sinners by choice or sinners by nature. What's our real problem? Are we sinners because we choose sin and we can choose not to sin, so dang it, quit choosing sin, Pelagius' view? Or are we sinners by nature, that we're broken and disordered, and we need a spiritual hospital, and therefore we need a Savior, and that Savior is going to walk with us through our disorderness and brokenness, healing us some, and us remaining in some of it, until ultimately our bodies are finally redeemed and our infirmities are taken away. And the church made a very clear decision on this controversy and chose Augustine's view. That we're not sinners simply by choosing sin, but we're sinners by nature. We have a broken, sinful nature that the Bible calls the flesh. And indwelling sin creates an enormous number of disordered desires in many areas of our lives. Long before there's any debate about any of this, scientifically or in relationship to sexuality, the church long decided that we believed we were broken critters. Full of disordered desires that we had to seek to follow Jesus to either suppress them and walk in a different direction or seek to be healed from them. And, and, be, and if we have a view of sin that you just choose sin, well, you should stop choosing sin. Then here's what's going to happen. We're going to have a terrible relationship with the poor who have been, so, you know, if a poor person's socialized into learn helplessness and we just think they're just picking poverty, and we go, well, you should go to college. You should work hard. Just go to college. I mean, just, that'll just be very unhelpful, really dumb and ignorant on our part, and very unloving. It's a bad view of sin. Same thing with sexual desires. If you deal with somebody who's addicted to pornography or anything like that, or if you're dealing with somebody who has same-sex attractions, listen, it's, it is part of their nature in the sense that all of our desires are part of our nature, some of it part of the divine nature of God's created image in us, and part of it is bent and broken within our sinful nature. It's all in there, and it all really is part of their nature, depending on how you use the word nature. Don't get confused over the vocabulary. Does that make sense? And so we have to have a deeper view of sin. We also have, a de- have to have a deeper view of brokenness, and here's what I mean by that. It is very unhelpful to look at a person who has same-sex attractions and tell them that they have disordered desires and are, have a, and are experiencing a kind of sexual brokenness when we think as heterosexuals, whoever we is, um, that what we're expect- experiencing is sexual health and fullness and wholeness, okay? Um, when I got married at 21, I was a virgin. I've been married to the same woman my whole life. I've only had sex with one person. We have a good sex life, a nice marriage. She's my best friend, and we do not experience sexual wholeness, okay? We don't. We just don't. It's not easy. It's not always great. It doesn't work the way we'd like it to. You know, we have all these arguments about drives and whose is more and what's that and we try this and it doesn't work and I wish she'd feel this way and why does it take so long to win all this, okay? And it's just, and we are supposed to be the model, right? I mean, I read one, there was one sex expert this week. I was reading some stuff on this because for the thing I'm doing tonight and she said, you know, you can try that new sexy position but you're, you're actually more likely to fart on each other than to actually experience multiple orgasms. <laughs> She's more likely. It's just it's reality. You know? Listen, we, the heterosexual, married, Christian, Jesus-loving people, we are not experiencing sexual wholeness, okay? What we are experiencing is a certain measure of grace from God 
in a gift that is both part of our divine nature, but deeply broken and bent by sin, both within our nature and through our culture, such that it is a twisted contortion of both good and broken. And that's what we are all experiencing. And we're seeking Jesus to help us experience it in a progressively less broken way and experience more grace in it. That's what we heterosexual married Christian people, whatever, or single Christian, whatever, that's what we're doing, okay? And our, our same-sex attracted friends need to, need to know that. Because otherwise, they think what we're telling them is, listen, you're, you're suffering from sexual brokenness, and I'm, I'm experiencing sexual wholeness. Nobody experiences sexual wholeness this side of heaven, period. As far as I can tell. Maybe it's just I'm having marriage problems. I don't think that's right. Um, and so we have to have a deeper understanding of brokenness, how broken we are in our sinful natures. And if we do, we'll have a lot more compassion for people. And I think, it's, I think, I think we'll have more success in expressing love and compassion for others. And then I think also we need a better understanding of community and sexuality. I can't spend any time on this, but just to say this, um, most people think that if you ask somebody, a normal person, to commit them li- their lives to a life of celibacy, not to have sex, that A, you're asking them to live a fundamentally stunted and incomplete life, and it probably will turn them in on themselves in some kind of sexually deviant way, and they'll probably end up trying to have sex with a kid or something. That's what people really believe about chastity and singleness in this culture. They believe that the need to express ourselves sexually with somebody else is so fundamentally profound within our expression of ourselves that if you, if you try to be single, or you try to be chaste, or you ask anybody to do that, you will psychologically destroy them. It is impossible. And that is ridiculous. And we can't see that. There are people in this room who've been celibate for 30 years. And they, I mean, listen, I remember when I was single and I, you know, I wasn't married yet and I couldn't have sex and I wasn't having sex. And, you know, I thought about it a good bit, but I thought about a lot of other things. I was going to school and I was making contributions here and I was helping kids and I was working in this and I was doing ministry and I was, I had a, I had a really full life and I wasn't having sex. You know, I mean, honestly, really? But, but because of our human nature and because of how sexualized we are in the culture we're actually in, we think what we're experiencing right now in terms of, oh my gosh, I've got to do something is normal. Listen, if you lived in France in 1520 and there were only three women you even knew, four of which you were related to and one you were married to, you wouldn't think that way. It's just we just have seen so much pornography uh, everywhere on everything like moderate and explicit porn. I mean, we've just, our sexuality has been amped up so much that we're just all abuzz with sex and so the idea of just not doing it is just insane. But it's not insane. It's not impossible. And our views on this are not true. And so the idea that if, if I find myself really locked into an unchanging same-sex attracted situation that the only option I have is to indulge it and express it and affirm it because if I try to hold it in, that will be repression. I will destroy myself psychologically and singleness is not possible. I don't think that's biblical and I don't think that that's accurate scientifically either. Four, how do we respond in public life? Quickly. Um, I think the main thing in public life, I don't, I'm not going to comment about same-sex marriage and what those laws should be or any of that stuff. I don't know the answer to that stuff, okay? 
Um, there, our, our religious life and our beliefs about marriage are intertwined with civil law, and it's related to other things, and I don't know enough about that debate. I can't wade into that, okay? So you might think I should say one thing or the other thing, and I'm not going to say anything, okay? Here's what I think is the absolute minimum that we have to do. I think we have to be strong advocates for freedom in at least three categories. Strong advocates for freedom in science. Research needs to be allowed and should not be squelched and sequestered because of ideologies of different professional societies. I think that's extremely important. And those ideologies that, that are against whatever, they should be able to have their research too. But it, it's, it, I get sick of secular people tell, telling me about medieval stories that are only half true about the church suppressing science when there are scientific societies around suppressing science. They can't, you can't even study it. And it, it just, I, I think we need to be strong advocates for freedom. We cannot let our brothers and sisters who are in research and counseling and professional work just, well, they'll take care of themselves in those professional societies. No, they're probably going to have to be protected politically by the populace saying, no, there has to be freedom. Secondly, is in, profession, in the professional world, in the scientific research world, and in the professional practice world. People are getting accused of malpractice. Laws are being written in certain states against the, even the idea that you can try to do or develop some kind of therapy for these sorts of things. And listen, um, when Stanton Jones did his, his, his research, they also researched for negative effects because a huge issue is people saying, wait, if you do that, these, these same-sex attracted folks, they're going to be more depressed, they'll feel more suicidal, they'll be more prone to other psychological disorders, and you can't, you can't do this to them because you'll hurt them. Well, when they did their research, what they found was, was that that was not the case. Even a high percentage of people that did not get the outcomes they wanted were still in the therapy groups seven years later because they were helping them and they felt psychologically helped by the group that they were in, even though they had the exact same attractions that they had seven years ago when they started. And only one or two people in that study of 100, I can't remember which it was now, said, yeah, I felt harmed. And you've got to expect that. But stories of that abound, and so it feels like a lot higher percentage than it really is. And then third, I think, in civic life. The right of nonprofits and non-governmental, non everything that's not government and not family. The civil, civil life, which in America is shrinking, isn't it? But we used to have an extremely vigorous civic life, that which was not government and not family. And in that world, people were free to do what their conscience and beliefs told them to do. And we need to have a very strong belief in freedom in civic life, I think, as Christians, which means, which means that we may not be able to tell the UCC church down the road they can't celebrate gay unions and call them marriage. But, but that same freedom will allow us to say, I don't think we can do that. We, we don't believe that we can celebrate that. And as this civic institution, trying to live out the gospel authentically ourselves, we can't embrace that, and we're not going to. And we're going to live according to our conscience and according to our faith. And we, and we need to be free to do that. And if we don't, um, we may not be free to do that. Lastly, and really briefly, how do we relate to gay and lesbian people? Um, I think that there's a couple, two, a couple of things. One is... Um, is normalization. I think that you, I think in one sense you need to try to make them feel at home. I think you need to say, listen, yeah, I, yeah, listen, I believe, I believe that homosexual sex is sinful, and I believe that homosexual desires are disordered desires, but listen, um, I, 
I believe that I am sinful and I have a lot of disordered desires and I hope that you feel like you're in good company when you're with me. And I believe that the promise from Jesus is for you, is for me, and um, I think that there's a normalization that has to happen. Um, and, and just a lack of shock, and you know, like, oh yeah, okay. Um, I also think that there needs to be um, a lot of sympathy offered. Um, because I think that beca- because there is no um, organiz- there is no um, there's no outlet like I mean think about it this way um, for heterosexuals even though we experience sexual brokenness like everybody does we have some kind of coping outlet in marriage that God has allowed for us to have you know what I mean like I've got all kinds of sexual brokenness but there is a certain way in which my sexual drive can be fulfilled with my wife and that helps me that really helps me. It makes me feel not alone. It makes me feel, I enjoy it. There's all those kinds of things that come from that, that even though I'm experiencing sexual problems, I do have that outlet. Um, and I have somebody I'm trying to cope through this with. And, and chastity just doesn't allow that. And that's true. And, and the same sympathy we offer to same-sex attracted people, we offer to single people. Um, and, and you, and you, you it's it just, it's very necessary to do that because otherwise it, it just sounds really cool. I have a friend, 10 years, um, my age, same-sex attracted man, single, and he says, you know, the issue is not that I'm gay and I want to have sex. He said the issue is I, I want to have somebody in my life. I, I want to have that togetherness. That, and, it, and because I believe in Scripture and because I'm trying to work out the silly thing, it is hard. It's just hard not to have somebody in the bed with me who knows what I went through and who I share a checking account with and who I'm going to be in retirement. Just, it's hard. And therefore, I think we don't need to specialize in... Condemnation is very easily communicated. If you don't agree with somebody, they can just read it off your shoulders, you know? They know you don't agree. Um, And so trying to be kind is important. And I think also, when we say we should seek change, I think it's important to, to try to make really clear with people what we don't mean by that. Because people will assume what we mean by that is um, that you should, is denial or suppression, or um, that you should just use your sheer willpower to get over this. Or listen, if you pray and you're really sincere, if you pray to Jesus and you're really sincere, God's just going to heal you right now, and you're going to wake up and you're going to think women are super hot tomorrow. And, and, and listen, um, there are a lot of people with same-sex attraction that have been very deeply hurt because Christians have said, hey, let's seek change. They have no idea how that should even be attempted. And, but they, what they really believe is if you psychologically try hard and you pray and you, you know, I mean, I, I, I've talked to um, people with same-sex attraction orientations who, I mean, their Christian friend gave them pornography to look at, to try to help them. And it's, there's, there's, and it's just, just stupid. You don't want to do that. You, you, you tell them the gospel you say you want to walk with him, and then you say, look, if you, if you want to seek change, then let's look into t- try to figure out how to do it. But don't presume to know, because this is a very com- complicated um, phenomenon. Same-sex attraction, very complicated phenomenon. Human brains are weird, and they're complicated, and just don't— and they'll, I think they'll appreciate that. But at the same time, I think what we do want to say is this. Same-sex attraction is not your identity. Sexuality is much too weak a thing to hang your identity on. And ultimately, it will not support your personhood or your personality or your life. And so it's a, it's a tragedy to feel deeply confused and broken in that area, but you cannot bet yourself on that. And Jesus is saying you have to choose between following him and indulging 
and embracing that same-sex attraction. And, but Jesus is so much more solid than basing your life away from him and on the sexual attractions that you're feeling. Secondly, I think you don't want to think in terms of either or. Either you become a Christian or either you stay a Christian and you get rid of these or not. No, people, I mean, some of these folks are just going to live in extraordinary tension and don't make an either or out of it. They've got to, they've got to sort it out and you can walk with them to sort it out. But it's not a momentary like, okay, I'm going to go with Jesus. That's it. Yeah, you're going to go with Jesus and you're going to be confused and angry and frustrated and feel lonely and then feel fulfilled and have these, it's just going to be, Um, three, I think that you can encourage people to seek change without staking themselves on it. Um, I, t- I was talking with a guy this week in Orlando, or last week in Orlando, and he was talking with a guy who had worked with um, Exodus International for years, and he was, they were having a conversation about um, same-sex attracted people who went through Exodus and became Christians and then killed themselves. And he said, he said, you know, it wasn't that they were really gay, and then they pretended like they were Christians, and that led them to kill themselves. It was that they didn't know that sin persists. They didn't know that they were still going to have those feelings. They just, they, they thought they should have gone away, and when they didn't go away, that they were never going to get free, and they were, and then he said, he said, it's in their notes, it's in their, it's in their journals, it's, it's what they said. You could just tell that's what happened. He said, and he, every Christian has to know that, right? Every Christian has to know that, or otherwise you'll never believe God loves you, will you? If you come to Jesus and you believe in him and you try to follow him and then you find yourself sinning and, and you, you find all these sinful desires in you that the Bible's like, look, that's not okay. And you're like, but it's in me. I want to be this and I want to do that. And nobody tells you, look, buddy, that stuff's going to be there. The difference is, is that now there's a conflict. Before you were just a sinner. Now there's a conflict. The sin remains, but now Jesus is there and the Spirit is there strengthening the image of God in you against your sinful nature. And now there's conflict. And conflict is good. It means regeneration has happened and God is doing a work in you. The more conflict, the better. How many Christians don't know that? And because so much sin remains, they really feel like, how could God possibly really love me when all this is in there? God knows it's in there. And he told you in scripture he knows it's in there. And, and some of that is infirmity and will not go away until you die. And some of it you will overcome and you don't always know exactly which. And I think the bottom line is that you can only ever offer anybody what this passage offers. Paul says, some of you were those things, but when you came to Jesus, Jesus promised three things to you that he cleansed you of everything that darkened and blackened you sinfully and morally, that he set you apart for a new identity, that he will walk with you in, and that he justified you and made you right with himself, that you don't have to question anymore whether or not Jesus loves you and is walking with you and cares for you. Because listen, do not find your self-righteousness in your sexual morality. Jesus Christ performed sexual morality perfectly for you in his life, death, and resurrection. You and I are sexual failures, but Jesus fulfilled human sexuality sinlessly and perfectly. As a single man, mind you, about human wholeness, and it is only in his life, death, and resurrection that we really are justified, sanctified, and cleansed in our sexual selves and can try to approximate his beauty 
recognizing that we're going to constantly fall short. And if we, I think, get that in our bones, if we understand our sinfulness and our brokenness, if we understand sexuality and community, if we see, if we recognize that science isn't going to give us all the answers, and the Bible does say what it seems to, and we live publicly towards freedom, we live, we live interpersonally towards, towards empathy and love and care for other people, humbly, but yet actively, I, I think that we can be what we're meant to be no matter what the world says about us. They're all—listen, for our lifetimes, I think, you can pretty much count on being called a bigot, okay? You can pretty much count on that. That's going to happen. The question is, are you one? Who are—I don't care what they call us. What are we? Are they right about us? Or can we learn to follow Jesus in a humble way, in a self-sacrificing way, and in an honest way, and in a theological way, in such that they can—they'll call us that, but they'll be wrong. And some same-sex attracted people will find more love with us than they find anywhere. Yeah, they don't agree with me, but man, dang, do they, do they, love, they love me. I think that's reachable. And it will transform us as well as some we come in contact with. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for the patience of these folks. I, I thank you that Scripture is, is clear enough on this to help us. I, we wish, I mean, we live in this broken world, Father. We, we just wish we knew more. Um, Father, would you, would you help us to be kind and to be loving and to be hopeful towards our brothers and sisters um, who, who have these attractions, whether they want them or not. Help us to be loving towards them and honest towards them and hopeful with them and help them. Uh, Father, would, would you help us all embrace and enjoy the promises of the gospel and would you make us a people in this local church and in your wider church, would you make us a people who, um, who have backbones but who have soft hands and kind words? We want so much to be like Jesus in this, Lord. And we want ourselves, we want to stop idolizing and defining ourselves by our sexuality and seeing our self-righteousness in what we... Father, would you help us to grow in this as we grapple with the culture in which we live? Help us to be faithful. And we pray also, Father, that you would give us success in loving people and in helping the truth be more widely accepted for the good of all people and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.